Hello, bonjour, hello, and welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. How's everyone's New Year starting out? Was January good for you? Are you on track keeping up those New Year's resolutions? Do you see yourself running that marathon anytime soon? Have you given up drinking? Have you stopped eating carbs? You just overall, are you feeling better about yourself since last year? I hope you do. None of those goals are on my list, but I'm feeling pretty good about myself this year. Here's the thing about New Year's resolutions. Sometimes people, they come in too hot. They go extreme right out the gate, and that's hard to keep up with. Maybe you don't need to run 24 miles to make you happy. Maybe just make it a few here and there. A couple runs a week. Maybe hitting the three mile mark every time. Maybe that'll make you feel better. Ain't nothing wrong with that, and it's very doable. And sure, drinking a 12 pack or a bottle at each sitting, it isn't good for you. Maybe just have a couple here and there during the week. Everyone likes bread, and it's hard to cut it out completely from your diet. Maybe just throw some turkey slices between a healthier option from time to time. Maybe switch out the rice for something healthier now and then. My wife grates cauliflower and substitutes this for rice from time to time. And you know what? It's actually really good. And where am I going with this? Actually, I don't really know where I'm going with this. Yes, I yes I do. I do. It's to start with a little the little things or little adjustments in life that'll make you happy. Sometimes you don't need to go for that marathon. Okay. Maybe I didn't have a point to this. Look, here's what I'm saying for myself. Among the many other things that make me happy in life, reading and talking about the Great War also makes me happy, and it really puts me in a good place. Which is odd, because the Great War is a dark subject in history, but I don't care. It's funny. I follow this gentleman on Instagram. He's a Marine who reads a lot of books and reviews them. Very interesting guy. He made a post the other day regarding books on the Great War, usually being anti-war or sort of always being casted in a bad light. And for the most part, he's right. There's no positive light to shine on this history. Yes, there's a few books like Storm of Steel and others where you don't get the overall impression of hatred towards the war. But comparing this to, say, Johnny's Got His Gun, big difference. Johnny Got His Gun was published in 1939, written by a man named Dalton Trumbo, and it truly was an anti-war novel. But Johnny Got His Gun was a fictitious novel, so maybe a better comparison would be a book like Pailu, the World War I notebook of Corporal Louis Barthas. Barthas served for just about the whole length of the war. He even survived the meat grinder of Verdun and made it back to his family in one piece. His overall view of the war was extremely negative. The majority of the books I've read so far, and I've read a lot, there's no depiction of hope or positivity from most of these stories. The soldiers are relaying their memories of how hellish the war really was for them. Comparing the two different personalities of Ernst Younger and Louis Barthas, both served almost the whole duration of the war, both survived, and, that they, and yet they came home with two different perspectives. It really is fascinating and goes to show not all men think alike. There's men who were born to fight and there's those who aren't. But that doesn't mean one is better than the other. But enough about that. Folks, you know why we're here. We're here to talk about the Great War. Actually, I'm here to talk about it. You're here to sit back, listen, and enjoy. On the last episode, 
I talked about the BEF pursuing the German 1st and 2nd armies after they pulled back from the Marne and running smack dab into them at the River Aisne. Mm. Jesus, that's hot. Shit. Remember, according to the British High Command, they weren't expecting their troops to run into the Huns at the Aisne. After pulling back from the Marne, the German 1st and 2nd closed the gap that had been created with its 7th Reserve Division. They stopped at the River Aisne, regrouped, dug defensive positions, and waited for the Allies to show up. Ugh, that word Allies. It gets me every time. It's such a bullshit word for this war. Anywho, the BEF's objective after running into the Huns was to gain control of the higher ground, which the Germans currently held. Communes like Chemin de Dons, Soupier, and Venezel needed to be taken. This was key. If they didn't gain control of this dominant position, they would be slaughtered. The higher ground, in most cases, is the better position in wars. Having a better field of view is the best reason for having this. The BEF and French stormed the communes. Men were dropping like flies. But it didn't matter. They kept pushing on wave after wave. Casualties were being taken in mass on both sides. The men were becoming desperate and, frankly, tired of sitting in the open just to be mowed down by bullets. They began digging into the earth, creating trenches to protect them from enemy fire. The men would take turns digging and shooting. As if the men weren't stressed enough and tired, now they had to put in some hard manual labor digging trenches. And this takes us right up to about where we left off on the last episode. The men were engaged in fierce combat, and at this point, there was no more retreating. This was dig in and fight as hard as you can. Men showing their esprit de corps would fight with everything they had. And for what? They weren't fighting for France, no. It was for the men to their left and right, their pals, their chums, their brothers. But it wasn't only the soldiers with rifles and machine guns that were under extreme pressure. Medical personnel were too. They were desperately trying to find a safe zone to help save lives. Bodies were stacking. Wounded men were desperate. Heroes don't only carry rifles, they also carry bandages. In Peter Hart's book, Fire and Movement, he describes the situation as a medical officer named Captain Robert Dolby, under extreme pressure, established a regimental aid post for the men of the Second King's Own Scottish Borders. The men were currently pinned down in a wooded area along the Aisne. Dolby moving along the broken described the situation saying, quote, There were wounded men everywhere, and one didn't know where to begin. Then a corporal spoke to me, and I turned aside to a little hollow. And there lay young Amos. Only the day before I had spoken to him, as we lay lazily listening to the overhead shelling in the woods behind La Semour. He had behaved most gallantly at Mons, bringing in a wounded man from his platoon, under very heavy fire at a range of less than 50 yards. I told him that he must have had a very watchful guardian angel. Now again had this guardian angel come to him, but with the reef. He died quickly, for the aorta had been severed. After establishing the aid post, Captain Dolby went on to describe the situation, saying, At the edge of the wood, in a line with the shallow shelter trenches that our men had thrown up, was an old stone barn. Clearly the one place in all that wood for my dressing station. Established there, the wounded were brought to me, 
dressed, and such crude surgery as possible was attempted. All day long the firing was incessant, and our two companies, spread out along the fringe of the wood, were badly enfiladed. Steadily the stream of wounded poured in until, in the shelter of the wall, there was soon over 150 wounded and dying. All the time, the rifle bullets cracked like whips above us. End quote. Captain Dolby was working as hard as anyone could to save lives. Lives like that of Lieutenant James Pennyman, who was working to clear a jam on one of the machine guns on his team. He was shot in the chest, his body hit the ground, and after blood started pouring out of his mouth, he got the horrible taste of metal, and his first thoughts were, I'm a goner. His limp, gray body was carried back to the aid station where he was pronounced a goner by medics after seeing the position of the wound. But Dolby immediately recognized the lieutenant and began to work on him. The bullet barely missed the big vessel of his heart, and Pennyman somehow survived. Miracles were still apparent on the battlefield. But not in all cases. In fact, Dolby and his men worked through the night with the ones that couldn't be saved. The one thing that could help these poor souls leave this earth in peace was opiates. And there were still many men who lay dying on the battlefield through the night, crippled in agony, dying alone in the woods, as they could not save them all. The British weren't the only ones fighting on the River Aisne. The French, too, were heavily engaged with the enemy. And just like the BEF and the Germans, the French were also improving their fighting positions. Since the Marne, the Bailus had been giving it right back to the Germans putting up a good fight. One German soldier describes the situation as the French entered a village they held. As they occupied the village and got to the higher ground, the soldier described the situation saying, quote, The following morning the situation had changed. The enemy had entered the village and established themselves in our rear. It was not long before the French began firing at us from the church tower and the roofs. We had dug in a little during the night, but it didn't help. We were being fired at from above. Casualties mounted. About midday, I was hit in the upper left arm by a ricochet, then a few minutes later, in the left thigh. I lay at the fork in the road under machine gun fire. About 5 p.m., the remainder of my company got away, leaving us wounded behind. I had been lying there under machine gun fire for nine hours, awaiting the bullet that would kill me. When it finally fell dark, the firing stopped. I attempted to get up, but it was hopeless. I couldn't take a single step. There was nothing but to lie down again and wait for whatever might transpire. End quote. That German soldier would lay there for three days, and for the most part ignored by the French soldiers, who were too busy still fighting the rest of his company that had pulled back. He was given scraps of bread and sips of water by a kindly Frenchman, and eventually he was picked up by his own men after a successful counterattack on that position. By September 15th, men from all sides were digging more fighting positions, digging and digging. In fact, they would continue this for four years. The first trenches dug in September of 1914 aren't the ones we think of today. These were more like ditches. Remember, they were hastily out of de desperation for cover. A BEF soldier described an appalling scene from one of these early trenches saying, quote, The trench would be about four feet deep, that's all, with sandbags on the front. In between us and the German trenches, there were some potatoes growing. One chap said, I'm going to have some of those potatoes if they blow my blinking head off. He got out of the trench, he got the potatoes, 
but a shell took his head clean off his shoulders. That happened. It sounds a bit fantastic, but it's true. Lance Corporal Joe Armstrong, 1st Loyal North Lincolnshire Regiment, 2nd Brigade, 1st Division, 1st Corps, end quote. What a horrible way to go. You made it this far to have your life dangled and taunted by some potatoes, then your head gets blasted off by a shell? It's as if the reaper was dangling those spuds like a puppet luring in his next soul. Very sad. The night of September 15th, Sir John French improvised his original instructions to dig in. He now gave orders to his troops to strongly entrench all the lines that his army currently held. Go deeper and expand. Priority right now was defense. This was also to help the Pailus, who were still taking the offensive in certain parts of the Aisne. The British were right beside them. If they pulled back, the French would be destroyed, and they couldn't let that happen. The BEF began digging deeper and extending their trenches, and also started laying barbed wire between their trenches and the Germans wherever they possibly could. This process went on throughout the whole stay at the Aisne. There was great pride being taken in these trenches. Lieutenant Tennyson describes his trenches by saying, quote, At dawn, we moved back to our forward trenches by a wonderful communication trench about 300 yards long, which we had dug. If a farmer is not a fool, he will keep these trenches after the war and will make a fortune by tourists coming to see them. 2nd Lieutenant Lionel Tennyson, 1st Rifle Brigade, 11th Brigade, 4th Division, 3rd Corps. End quote. Over a century has passed and still people travel across the world to see these trench systems and the graves of the men that died there. I myself am one of them. In fact, I visited two times and I'm keeping my fingers crossed I'll go several more times. My first road trip was in France. I traveled from Verdun all the way up to Arras and the Somme, visiting memorials, cemeteries, forts, and trenches. My second trip was in Belgium, visiting the trenches in the Ypres salient, along with the memorials and cemeteries there. I know I said this in an earlier episode, but I'm going to say this again. If you're a history buff, particularly a World War I buff, you have to make this pilgrimage. You won't regret it. In fact, you'll thank yourself you did. We have this world at our hands. Go see it. Go see the things that interest you. Don't be afraid to take that step. If you are planning a trip and need suggestions, email me. I'd be more than happy to give you some tips, pointers, and recommendations from all the above places I've been to. Now, while the BEF began digging deeper and deeper, expanding and improving their trench positions, the Germans were hell-bent on slaughtering the Tommies with their heavy artillery. The Huns rained down hell with their 8-inch howitzer shells. They kept pouring in one after the other. The siege guns were brought into position along the Aisne to, to support the German defensive positions. They had been brought down from Maubeuge. This was the Brits' first contact with these siege mortars. The French were the ones at Maubeuge who saw the destructive power and what it did to those fortresses. 
Before that, the guns had destroyed the fortresses surrounding Liège, the Belgians got to experience that. Now the British were getting a taste of this power and the destruction that came with it. A BEF officer describes the situation as the shells start coming in, saying, quote, The whole place seemed alive with bursting shrapnel and high explosive shells. One burst a few feet over the crest line, hitting gun, horses, and my own poor horse. Another shell came right at us. It struck a little tree about 12 feet up from the trunk and exploded. I felt something hit me on the left breast and on my right instep. I had no pain and didn't think I was wounded. I looked up and heard Corporal Jack saying his leg was broken. And the lad laying next to me looked pitifully round and I saw he was practically disemboweled by the base of the shell. I then opened up my shirt and found a hole about four inches above the left nipple and a lot of blood flowing. I didn't feel sick and wasn't spitting blood, so I concluded it wasn't serious. Lieutenant Colonel Sir Cecil Lautho, 1st Scouts Guards, 1st Guards Brigade, 1st Division, 1st Corps. End quote. The British soldiers nicknamed these howitzer shells Jack Johnson's and Black Maria's. Some men under this type of stress, like being shelled with artillery or being constantly shot at or somebody trying to blow your head off, They'll sometimes take on religion if it were absent from their life. Some become superstitious, making ritual routines. And some will use dark humor to escape what they're really feeling in order to prevent from blowing a gasket under the pressure. You can run, but you can't hide. And if it's your time, it's your time. One soldier describes a shell attack, saying, quote, Our machine gun officer, Mr. Cecil, a very brave man who told his men not to bob, as shells and bullets would not hit them unless their name and address was on them. Just about five minutes later, he was hit by a shell himself and killed instantly. We had just heard the news when a shrapnel burst over us and knocked out 43 men, many of whom were my personal chums. It completely disemboweled an ammunition mule, and although I was right under it and next to men who were killed around me, I came out unscratched. It was a fearful sight, Groans, screams, legs and arms, and heads cut off, blood and gore all around. Private Frederick Firks, 2nd Grenadier Guards, 4th Guards Brigade, 2nd Division, 1st Corps. End quote. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the term Bob was British slang for don't worry. I could be wrong though. So if anybody knows that, please reach out to me and let me know if I'm correct or wrong. These howitzer shells were raining down everywhere and they weren't going to stop. And this is when shell shock started appearing. You can get shell shock under extremely stressful situations which can attack the nervous system. Men after the Great War would involuntarily twitch, go into spasms, become fearful, they would cry, shiver, and sometimes lose their memory. Shell shock has evolved into what is known today as PTSD. I think everyone is familiar with this term nowadays. But men were also getting shell shocked by the actual shock wave from the exploding shells. These shells are massive and they give off a very big concussive boom. Men were being killed with no traces of any wounds. If you're in a certain proximity when one of these shells detonates, and we'll refer to this area as the danger zone. 
I don't want to call it a kill radius because I'm talking about a person surviving the blast. If you're not hit by shrapnel, you weren't exactly coming out unscathed. It would be like having a giant man, say the size of Andre the Giant, taking a kid's head and shaking it as hard as he could. After the shake, rattling, and rolling is over, for a temporary period of time, you're going to be fucked up, confused, your senses will be off. This too was known as shell shock. Soldiers will report seeing their comrades having this blank stare in their eyes with no physical sign of any wounds. Men were staring into the abyss. They were being spoken to, but gave no response for a short period of time. And when they finally came to, there was confusion and loss of memory. What just took place? Now repeat that over and over and over and over again. Some men's minds were becoming unhinged from the trailer, if you know what I mean. In July of 2003, U.S. forces tracked down Saddam Hussein's sons, Ude and Kuse. The 101st Airborne Division was called in after a drawn-out firefight. The 101st started shelling the house with rockets. The concussion of multiple explosions probably killed the two before any bullet hit them, if they even did receive a bullet. Their brains were probably like scrambled eggs after so many concussive blasts. It would be like having somebody bash your head into death. These artillery shells are no joke. There's also many stories of shells taking out multiple men at once. Medics would rush to the aid of their comrades, only to find piles of headless, limbless, disemboweled bodies. Imagine sorting that out and still under the threat of more artillery fire coming in. One man rushed into one of these scenes to find a soldier with both of his legs ripped off. The soldier begged the medic to shoot him. Another man came running up but abruptly stopped in shock. That man, with a look of horror, recognized the soldier. It was his brother. The soldier cried to him, Shoot me, Tom. Oh, please shoot me. For the love of God, please shoot me, Tom, will you? Please shoot me. Tom couldn't do it. After he pulled out his revolver, he started shaking uncontrollably and stumbled away. The Germans had a major advantage with its superior artillery. Something needed to be done and quick or the whole BEF and the French would be slaughtered. And, and damn it, I did it again. I thought for sure I could wrap up the AIM with part two, but nope, I need a part three. The reason I'm not rushing through to finish off the AIM right here is because on the next episode, I'm going to introduce another advancement into the war to help combat this artillery problem. And there's still plenty more to talk about before we wrap up the Battle of the Ain. So I'm going to start wrapping this up. But, but not before I give this episode's World War I genre movie recommendation. It only seems fitting since Kirk Douglas just passed away on February 5th that I should recommend the movie Paths of Glory. Obviously starring Kirk Douglas and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Now, Kubrick was a controversial director who was famously known for making anti-war films. And although Paths of Glory is known as an anti-war movie, it nonetheless is a good movie. 
It's about a French unit being put on trial for cowardice after storming into no man's land. One man will have to take the blame for all, and the punishment will be death. And here's my honest opinion. I really, really don't like movies with a foreign plot having actors speaking English. It just gets to me. I don't like it. I don't feel there's any need for that. Don't be lazy. Read the subtitles. Movies about Germans should have actors speaking German. French movies should have actors speaking French, etc. Nothing worse than seeing somebody like Tom Cruise playing a German. Ugh. And although I think this movie should have had actors speaking French, Kirk Douglas, he did a good job for what it was. And the beginning trench scene is among one of the best trench scenes in film. The drum rolls of fire, the camera shot, the artillery going off. I think it was a really great scene. And I recommend it just for that scene alone. The rest of the movie and the story is good, but I'll let you be the judge. And that was this episode's World War I genre movie suggestion. Rest in peace, Mr. Douglas. All right. I want to thank everyone for their continued support for the podcast. You fans are the best, and I'm receiving nothing but great feedback so far, and you're the reason why I'm doing this. As always, you can email me at ottgwpodcast at gmail.com. You can get all the episodes on my webpage at www.ottgwpodcast.com and on podcast apps such as Stitcher Radio, Spotify Radio, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, and more. Please leave me a review on whichever app you're listening to me on. It will be greatly appreciated. Stay tuned for part three on the Battle of the Ain. Take care, everyone. <laughs>